may be seated. Take your Bible and open with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Going back in our line, getting back on track with the direction that we have been heading. And so today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58, the end of this chapter. And so I would uh, encourage you that we're going to be in Matthew for a few weeks now and know that it is good to walk through the Word of God as a body of Christ together. You know, a couple of years ago, about two and a half, I was serving a church called Red Springs Baptist Church in Seymour, Texas. The church in the community where we lived was technically about nine miles west of Seymour. And it was a very rural farming community, and I had been serving them for almost six years. And so as I was doing that, I began to pray about what God would have me to do with my family and where God would lead us, and did he want me to continue to serve the body of Christ in Red Springs, or did he want me to seek and to go somewhere else? Would he open up another door for me to enter into service there? And so as I was praying about that, I believe that God released me from the service there and allowed me to to look for another body of Christ to serve. And as I was looking, I came across the publication where Iron City Baptist Church had placed, if you would, its advertisement for a pastor of discipleship and administration. And as I read the job description, I liked it. And as I looked at it, I thought that would be great. And then I went to the website, and I opened up Iron City's website, and I wanted to meet the staff. I wanted to know who else was here and so I start where else but with the lead pastor. And so I opened up Cody's information and his bio. And I looked and I said, hmm. Well, I like the position. It sounded good. I, he looks like a nice guy. But I don't know if I can go serve with somebody who's serving his home church. It caused me a little bit of reservation because, you know, honestly, churches, they're one of the few places where we call leaders in order not to follow them. Just being real. It's one of the few places where we call teachers and don't allow them to instruct us. And so when I saw that this was Cody's home church, it gave me pause. I wondered in my mind, is this going to be a church that allows the pastor to lead? Is this going to be a church where it allows the pastor to, to teach and they follow his instruction? Or is this going to be a place where they called the kid who they changed his diapers and watched him grow up in youth and they're going to do what they want to because of who he is. And I hesitated. There's some other things that gave me pause there at the moment and God dealt with me on those. But this passage of scripture was in my mind when I was looking at Iron City Baptist Church and would God call me to serve this body of believers. 
I thank God that he did. I'm glad that I was over able to overcome the questions and the hesitations I had at first. But they were there. They were legitimate. But God worked through all of that and brought us together. This is a passage of scripture that I know Cody was looking forward to preaching. Because it does deal with him being in his hometown and amongst his own family. Because you see, this is not typical. It's not normal that a church calls someone back who it has helped disciple and bring up. There are a lot of reasons why. But truly, shouldn't we be looking forward to doing that? If the church is a church whose discipling is the way they're called to disciple, and making disciples who make disciples, should not one of those disciples be best equipped to lead the body of Christ that they were brought up in? Should it not just be one of our elders stepping in and faithfully serving when one steps out? It's a beautiful picture, but it's a picture that hasn't worked well in a lot of cases. I will say that I do believe it's working right here. So you don't, I'm not leaving you wondering. When we come to this passage in Matthew, we understand that Jesus has started his public ministry. He has started uh, allowing people to see who he is. He has started performing miraculous works. He has been teaching in the synagogues. He's been teaching in the streets. He's been calling disciples to follow him. He has been moving in the hearts and lives of people. And he has been rejected by some and he has been accepted by some. But this is moving forward the direction that Matthew is taking us in the, in the understanding that Jesus is going to be rejected by everyone and that's what's going to lead us to the cross and him being crucified is his rejection by the whole of Israel. His rejection by all of mankind is what's going to point us and take us to the cross where he is put to death so that he might pour out his blood, so that that might cover our sinfulness and bring us into a state of righteousness with God the Father. So he has to be rejected. And this is just another moment where he's going to face the rejection of those that he cares about and those that he loves and understanding that in that he knows and the Father knows that there is a plan that is proceeding from the Father, through the Son as he works it out, to the cross, and then to the resurrection, and on into eternity. Stand with me, if you would, as we read our text together today in, John, in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. And that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there 
because of their unbelief. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. You may be seated. So the first verse, chapter, chapter 13, verse 53, we really just see that this is a transitioning verse. Jesus had finished the parables. And so if you'll remember, we've been walking through for several weeks with a couple of, of outs, but we've been walking through the parables that are there in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus has been teaching them. Jesus has been sharing with them. Jesus has been laying out what it means to come to him, what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God, the value of the kingdom of God, the importance of that relationship with him and having faith in him and understanding who he ultimately is. And he's been doing this so that the people can hear and that they can know, but he has been doing this in a way of parables. He's been doing this in a way that is somewhat veiled. He's been doing this in a way that hides some of what is actually being said in this situation. And so Jesus has been teaching these parables, and he's been laying them out before the people. But at this point, he's finished these parables, this set of parables with which he's been teaching, and he went away from there, and he came to his hometown. And so we don't know if there's a connection, but we do know that in chapter 12 of Matthew, right before the teaching of the parables is to take place, Jesus' mother and brothers come to visit him, right? They come, and he says, who's my mother and brother? This you are, the ones who faithfully do the will of God. Those are my mother. That's my mother, my brothers, my sisters. This is my family which has huge implications for the church today, right? We are a family of God called to love and faithfully serve one another every day. We don't get an out. We're called to be the family of God. And sometimes that's messy and it gets dirty and it's not easy to do, but that's who we're challenged to be. And so then he begins to teach these these parables and he begins to open up their eyes so that they can see his disciples are are hearing them and they're listening to what is being said but he we don't know if that's why he went but we do know that he went back home this is a a story that's also relayed in uh, Luke it's also relayed in Mark Luke gives us a little bit more detail and so as we look at this He makes this connection back with the parables that he's already been teaching as he moves forward. And I would put before you this morning that what this is, is this is an outworking. So he's explained why to his disciples he teaches in parables. And it's that hard passage so that some who who are blinded don't see and they don't hear and they don't repent, they don't respond. It's that difficult text where Jesus says, hey, I teach this way so not everybody gets it. Because remember what he's doing is he is walking through a life that is laid out by the Father himself. And he's moving in a direction to the cross so that he can die for our sins and be risen again so that we can have hope and new life in him. It's all progressing in that direction. It's all moving that direction. So if they were to hear and understand and accept him immediately as the Christ, as the Messiah, and make him king, that changes what's going to take place. God has a plan, and he's teaching them in parables. And I would put before you that as we walk to the end of this chapter, this truly is just an illustration of how the parables actually did take place and work in the hearts and lives of individuals. That those who were willing came, and those who were unwilling rejected. And that's what's taking place here. But he know, we know that he walks in, he goes into his hometown, and he goes into what the Scripture says is their synagogue. 
He goes into the place where on the Sabbath they would have gathered and they would have worshipped. He walked into their church on Sunday morning, if you would. That's what's taking place here. And he stands up and he teaches. And we say, well, what does he teach? Well, this is where we have more than just one gospel. And so we understand what Jesus was teaching. And Luke tells us that what Jesus was teaching was coming out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61. And so let me read here what he was teaching. And I'm going to read it out of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 4 because that's where he, he lays it out clearly. But we see that it comes from Isaiah chapter 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and, to, and recovering of sight to the blind and to set a liberty to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus is teaching the Old Testament when he comes into the synagogue, which is what should have been taking place. They open up the word of God together. Lo and behold, it is the very word of God who is proclaiming the word of God. But then he rolled up the sleeve, the, the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, you, you've got you've to put yourself in this setting. You're there in Nazareth and you're in the synagogue and Jesus comes in. And you've lived in Nazareth and you know Jesus and you've seen him in synagogue and you've watched him in the community. And you know his mom. Most likely Joseph has passed at this point. But you knew his father. You knew the trade that he was in. You knew the trade that Jesus was in. You know his brothers. You know his sisters. You know about his family. He walks in. He grabs the skull. He reads Isaiah 61. This prophetic utterance of the Messiah who is to come. And then he sits down and says, this is me. Now, that might just catch us a little bit off guard. It might just cause us to stir just a little bit in our hearts before we really believe or accept or, or even come to a conclusion on this. And we know that in other places where Jesus has come in and he has opened up the scroll and he has taught the word of God, that the people have been amazed at his teaching, that he has taught with one that has authority. Well, that's amazing that, yes, God has authority over his word. And being fully God and fully man, Jesus has authority when it comes to teaching the word of God. And so we know that the way he taught was amazing for people to hear and amazing for them to see. And they came to different understandings of what was going on. And we know that when he walked into a community, that when he was there, that he did these mighty works. He healed, and he blessed, and he pointed them to the Father. And in all of this, this is what he does when he comes in to his own hometown. Because I don't know about you, but who do you love? You love those people that you know and have known for an extended period of time. Now, 
I say I don't have a hometown, and I don't technically call anywhere a hometown. My family moved a good bit as my father was a pastor. But my wife is from a small town in South Alabama of about 1,500 people. And she was born there, and she lived in the same house. And she started kindergarten at the elementary school. And she went to the elementary, and she went to the middle school, and she went to the high school. In her entire life, she lived in the same house, in the same town, the same people. She has a love and a care for those individuals that many of you understand. Some of us don't. But she cares for them in a way that the gospel, when you hear it, needs to be taken to those who you care anything about. And so those that we love, those that we care for, we're going to make sure we hear. And Jesus, going back to his hometown, does what Jesus does, which is explain the truth of who he is, because that's what people need to know. And as he does this, he does it through the word of God. He does it through his mighty works. He opens up clearly before them who he is and what he has been called to do. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. He is the one that's been set apart by God from the beginning of time, who's been prophesied about throughout the prophets, who's been pointed to for centuries as his coming, and now he is explaining to them that I am not just some carpenter working down the street. I am the Messiah. They don't know him as the Messiah. They don't know him as that. They know him as Joseph's son, as Mary's son, as the brother to these and the brother to these. And that's who he is. And so when they look at him, their minds are made up. They're already convinced of who he is. He's just the carpenter, the carpenter's son. And there's his mom to prove it. There's nothing special about him. So they begin to ask these questions. And these questions are not illegitimate questions. They truly are questions that we should ask when someone comes in and begins to teach and to preach and to, to offer up some authority, especially when it's new and we have not heard it before. We better ask some questions about what they are attempting to say. So I said, where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get the wisdom? Because we know he didn't follow a rabbi. He was the carpenter. He was working all the time, just, just out there doing his deal. So where did he get these? How did, how did he learn how to do these mighty works that you say he does? He's nobody. He's just a carpenter. They were astonished. Isn't this, hey, isn't this a carpenter? Isn't that Mary's son? The, now they've, they've begun asking their questions in a much more derogatory tone at this point, haven't they? They begin asking their questions already knowing the answer. Don't you love it when somebody asks you a question that they already know the answer to? Or are you like me and that really just kind of irritates you a little bit? Right? They've already answered the questions in their hearts. And so they ask, where'd you get this sum? How'd you learn how to do that? Aren't you just 
this guy down the street who needs to be doing what you're supposed to be doing? Because in Nazareth, I mean, honestly, if Joseph was, the text refers to him as the carpenter, he may have been one of only a few craftsmen and tradesmen in the community. And so his, he was missed for what benefit he could physically bring to them because their eyes were closed because they'd been blinded. Their hearts were hard because they'd been hardened to the truth of who Jesus was and they were going to reject him completely. Where did this man get all these things? And notice what happens. When you come to Christ and you enter into a time of questioning and seeking who Jesus is, and you've already got the answers in your mind and you're not willing to be convinced of something different, you will take offense at what and who Jesus is. You're going to be offended by the truth of the gospel unless you come with an open heart. You're going to be offended by the word of God unless it's the spirit of God who is opening up our hearts and our minds to understand it properly. Because let me tell you, the gospel of Jesus is offensive. Just think about it. You are a dirty, rotten, no good sinner who can't do anything to save yourself. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I can't remember the last time I looked in the mirror and I said that to myself. As a matter of fact, I have this idea of myself that when I look in the mirror, I don't know what you guys see because it doesn't bother me. What you see, I see me. And I like myself most of the time. When I look in the mirror, I'm not ashamed of who I see. I like myself. You know how long I've done that? As long as I can remember. I like who I am. Many people don't, but I do. I don't look in the mirror and look for the flaws. I look in the mirror and see, man, that is good. You see? Alan agrees with me. But that's the way I approach things. And, and so when I come to the mirror and I've got to acknowledge the reality of who I really am, that's offensive for somebody like me. Aaron, you're a no good, dirty, rotten sinner who can't do anything for yourself and you better come to faith in Jesus. I don't like to hear that because I think I can do almost anything. There's been very few things set before me in life and I said outright, I can't do that. Even if I thought I couldn't, I'm going to try. And if you tell me I can't, I'm going to try until I die. But the gospel says you can't do it. You, as good as you are and as powerful as you are, and as many times as you've picked yourself up and as much as you have done for yourself, it was useless and you can't come to know God without Christ. 
why do you think the world takes offense at the church? Because the message that we proclaim about Jesus is offensive. That is why, brothers and sisters, we must be mindful of the way we present those truths to people so that we are not offensive and we allow the gospel to be offensive and not us. Because there is a difference. The gospel is offensive. We have to have him. And, and it's, if they were to look at Jesus and say, yes, you are the Messiah, that means that he's no longer the carbon, he's no longer what they thought. And all of their thought and all of what they knew and all of who they were is going to change. And it's the same thing when we come to Jesus today. When we acknowledge before him that we are no good, dirty, rotten sinners and need, desperately in need of a Savior, and that Savior is him then it changes everything about us. That's why so many reject. It's why so many are unwilling to heed the truth of the gospel. It's why narrow is the gate and few that find it there go in. And wide is the path to destruction, and it's full of people walking their way, rejecting the truth of who God is for a lie or for just absolute rebellion. Doing the same thing that the people of Nazareth did. It's the same today. We're going to accept him or we're going to reject him because we're going to have the answers and be offended at the answer he gives, or we're going to come open, longing for him to make a difference in our lives and in our hearts. Let me just tell you, if you are offended at the truth of the gospel, the gospel's not changing. If you're offended at the truth of the gospel, the gospel is not changing. Personally, I would love to make it fit what you long for it to be. That's why I'm not God. Because God has set out what the gospel is, and it is not changing. Our need for Christ has not changed. Our need for him is not going to change. We will always need Christ. And when we come to him, it is the Spirit of God through him that allows us to change and be transformed into the person God would have us to be. It all stems from being not offended but accepting the offense as necessary for my own benefit and my own good. And they took offense at him and Jesus knowing this says the prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. And this is the text that when I saw Cody's face and I read his bio and I read that Iron City was his home church caused me great pause. Because you're either going to call that man in to be a leader or you're going to call that man in because you're going to lead him. One of the two. And unfortunately, many times it works itself out that they're called in so that they can be led. 
Because it's different to look at a man who you've changed his diaper and taken him on youth trips and to watch him preach the word to you with authority and tell you the way that you're supposed to live out a life for God. Because you know why? Because you saw him growing up. You saw him on those trips. You know, the hardest sermon I've ever preached and the hardest place that I've ever preached is when I went back to Cameron's hometown where I had lived for about three and a half to four years with my family and I had to preach in the in the pulpit where my father preached faithfully for years as I lived a life of rebellion against him and against the word of God. And I had to look out at those people and say I am no longer the man that you knew. The word of God has overwhelmed me and I have committed my life to that. Not all believe. But that's okay. Jesus lived a perfect life. Can you imagine? He's the kid in school. He's the kid in town that lived a perfect life. That's who Jesus is. And yet... They don't believe him. How much less are they going to believe somebody like me who they know my flaws, they know my faults, they know my shortcomings? It's a difficult task. It's a difficult task for a leader to look out at a congregation and know that so many of the individuals there meant so much to him and were so important in growing him up and moving him in the direction that he moved and he had such great respect for and then to tell them that now he's going to leave them. It's a difficult task. But Jesus says this, and it's it, this this portion of this text is in all four of the Gospels. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Again, this is moving the idea of rejection so that we come to the cross forward. Everyone is going to reject. All of Israel is going to reject. They're all going to cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. When they should be crying out, enthrone him, enthrone him, enthrone him. And it's not just those that didn't know him. It's those that knew him the best. Church history tells us and the scriptures tell us that his family does come around. They do eventually believe that what he says really is true, that he is the Messiah. And they begin faithfully serving the early New Testament church. And it says in verse 58, And he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. And as Jesus tamed in this section because they don't believe he can't work? No. Jesus' ability to heal, Jesus' ability to do mighty works is not contained because of what someone else believes. Because remember, he is God, and it doesn't matter if the whole world rejects that. He's still the creator, the sovereign creator of the universe, and it's still going to spin because he holds it in his hand. And that's not changing. He had already worked miracles out and, and not done them out of someone's belief. 
He continues to do that. What we're talking about here is the fact that they had made up their minds. They had rejected who he said he was. They were intent on refusing that and were not going to listen. If you read Luke's account, they literally run him out of town. So there's a couple of things that are going on here. One is a timing issue. They, don't, they are so offended by him that they force him out. But also, if you look at what Jesus did with his miracle, he used them so that he might point people to the Father, that he might use them to, to glorify God. He wasn't some sideshow spectacle to draw attention to himself or to something that he was doing. He used his mighty works to influence people to come to know him as God, to come to know him as the Messiah, to come to know the Father so that they could have the hope of the kingdom of God eternally. And so once their hard, hard hearts had been set, their minds had been convinced, and they were no longer open to hearing and seeing why would Jesus continue to do mighty works to point to the Father when they had already rejected who he was and he was not able to point them to the Father because of that. So he did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief, because of their hard hearts, because of their stubbornness. This, this passage tells us a few things. One, it clarifies a couple of errors that have taken place throughout church history that Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She had other children, sons and daughters. So that's one error that this passage kind of remedies. The other is this idea that Jesus had done all these known miracles as he was growing up in his community. It doesn't seem to point that out in the text. The miracles that he would have done should have pointed them to the truth of who he was. His perfect life wasn't enough. So the thought that we can proclaim the glory of God so that people can know and come to the gospel without speaking, just by living a good life? Eh. Jesus lived a perfect life. And they rejected him. They're not going to look at your good life that you think is good and that I think is good and accept it as a reason to bring honor and glory to God. But ultimately, it lays before us all the one question that we have to answer. Jesus is the Messiah. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross, and he's risen again. This moment he sits at the right hand of God the Father enthroned and one day he will come again and reconcile everything to himself. Have you already answered the question or are you willing to allow your heart to be broken and for the offense to change you or are you going to grow a root of bitterness out of the offense and reject God eternally? This is who Jesus is. What say you?
accept the truth of him and his gospel or will you reject it? Church, I would ask today that will this saying be true of you? Will the prophet of God be without be without will the prophet of God be without honor except in his own hometown? Will you follow the lead of the men God has called to faithfully serve the Lord? Two of them being from among you. What will you do? You can't leave here today without responding. We're going to enter into a time of response. And when we do, you have to answer the question. Will I accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and King? Or will I reject him as nothing but a mere man and have great offense at him? Church, will I follow the leadership of our elders as they follow the leadership of Christ or will I reject it? You sit in one of those two categories. have to answer the question today how will you respond let us pray